0: this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Rami Nashashibi. He's the executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Rami Nashashibi at OnBeing.org. Thank you. There's that train whistle I have come to love so much. What is it? What is it? A boat! Okay, see? I don't live near boats. Close. <laughs> um, all right, we have a hard stop today at 3.15, which is going to be difficult, so I'm going to plunge right in. Um, I first met Rami Nashibi, not in person, but his voice coming into my head through headphones, um, just a few months uh, after September 11th, 2001. I think it was January 2002. And we wanted to put together a program on the problem of evil. Evil was a word that had entered our political and military vocabulary in a big way. And I wanted to talk about evil um, and, 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 and talk about it in terms of what our religious traditions know about this so that maybe we, in our public life, could use this word more meaningfully. And I discovered uh, Rami Nashashibi, um, a Muslim who was working uh, or facing despair and what some might call evil in a very American context, Um, working with kids and their families, struggling with poverty, addiction, and crime in the inner city of Chicago. And I still so vividly remember Rami just very reflectively and movingly talking to me about the Arabic word for evil that, that came to him most readily and that the connotations of that word were all about Looking inside, looking inside oneself for evil, and then only in that spirit looking outward again. At that time, Rami was working on his doctor in sociology, which he has since received. He was doing this while he was running the nonprofit organization he founded while he was still a student at DuPaul University. It's called Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network. That acronym also means faith in Arabic. Iman's vision cultivates social justice and the arts in its expressions of the core Islamic commitment to humanity. And it's gained attention all over the world. Among his numerous awards, he was named one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world by the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Center and Georgetown's Prince al bin Talal Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. From the heart of a quintessential American city, Rami Nashashibi is charting a Muslim cutting edge on some of the most important social territory of a globalized 21st century world. So please welcome Rami Nashashibi to Chicago. So Rami, you were born in Jordan, is that right? Yes. Your father was a diplomat and it, would it be fair to say that you were raised in a secular Muslim home?
1: Yeah, I'm, you know, I think that's a, a fair representation and sometimes I think when you say that there's a no, there's the idea of a, a ideological secularism and I don't think I was raised that way. It's just I, my father and they divorced at a young age and my mother were just very a-religious. Uh, I think my mom had a very was also very American, brought up on the southwest side of Chicago, but my father... Just didn't relate to religion um, in mm-hmm. any meaningful way.
0: And then, um, would you tell a little bit of the story about how then you discovered Islam on your own, and and what you discovered there that was magnetic?
1: Well, um, so so backing up, I guess a little. My, my I was born in Amman. Um, my mother, uh, who grew up on the southwest side of Chicago, she was born in May of nineteen forty-eight. Uh, in in Israel Palestine in one of the oh, uh, Palestinian okay. villages at the time in the midst of extraordinary turmoil of right. course in that part of the world uh, and became one of a very one of the first Arab American families to settle on the southwest side. My father met her in the midst of graduate school and then they went back and they I was born there and then moved around the world. Um, they divorced at a young age and then I um, was brought up in uh, in part, I was living in Europe actually before, finally deciding to come back to Chicago for, just thinking that I needed, I got a soccer, you know, I was uh, brought to uh, by a sc- soccer scholarship at one of the colleges on the southwest side of Chicago and there just, was confronted for the first time, honestly, about life life in America, and particularly around issues dealing with race. And um, while I was not brought up religious, I certainly uh, was cognizant of political struggle at a very young age, and um, quickly became fascinated uh, with uh, life in America, particularly around issues related to disparities, racial violence, and. Uh, in Chicago, still extraordinarily racially segregated city, so being told where to go, where not to go, and uh, the places that I was told not to go were the first places I went, <laughs> and um, and you know it was just both horrified, fascinated, and you know confused by this, and then where I fit in this narrative and trying to figure that out. All meanwhile, the first Gulf War was uh, you know in the midst of. Uh, you know, under underway, and I received, was beginning to receive particular vibes on the southwest side of Chicago at that time, and I think at one moment, there was a note posted on my door, and uh, not not calling me something not very nice, and confronting that, I decided I needed to leave that campus, Um, and I went to another campus on the north side of Chicago, a little more diverse, and started dealing there, again, becoming very active with issues, particularly with black and Latino students. Um, And I became increasingly fascinated and drawn to the African-American narrative. Um, And in the process of doing that, uh, became more and more uh, familiar with and interacted with those from that narrative who had encountered Islam. Right.
0: 30% 30 of American Muslims are... Or African-American.
1: Yeah. It's a story
0: I think a lot of people don't know.
1: Yeah, and it is, you know, and it's certainly a story I didn't know either, you know, and, and I think they had confronted Islam, they encountered, the African-American encounter Islam is, is, is truly an American story, and it's mm-hmm. one that's deeply anchored in the larger American narrative. I mean, it's funny people don't know that, even though, you know, we know about movies like Roots, and we know that Kunte Kinte was a Muslim from the Mandinka right. tribe, and We see Steven Spielberg's Amistad. We see Muslims who are praying on the ship after they recover the ship. And so we know that Islam is is really deeply, and the Muslim experience is deeply embedded into the American narrative, uh, particularly through the African-American experience. And it's when I started encountering that um, partly I was fascinated with those who had come out of the Black Panther experience and black nationalism and, and, and several of those people who had come from that experience who were now more devout Muslims started confronting me about my lack of religiosity uh, I was more interested in organizing and connecting and agitating which we were doing a lot of um, and they were more interested and they were equally interested in why I had no Inclination towards a formalized religious practice. My standard answer, I think, was I'm agnostic, I've I, I lived in Rome, I've lived in Saudi Arabia, I've seen enough of institutionalized religion, <laughs> you know. Of yeah. course, I had not read any of those religious texts and probably was totally re- ignorant of all religious traditions. Um, but I thought I knew enough to be able to reject them categorically.
0: And there you all were at a Catholic university, also. Like, yeah, say that. I was at the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, but through, that, through those set of conversations, though, I really picked up the Quran for the first time, honestly, to debate these guys. Because I just kind of found it, some of them were extremely compelling. Uh, and very intellectually grounded. And I honestly just, I found a disconnect. I just couldn't understand why people who I really looked up to who were intellectually grounded, who had a good sense of social justice, they had a strong historical background on why they really took religion seriously more and Islam seriously. And so for the first time, I really started reading the Quran only to refute these guys. And I remember, <laughs> and seriously, I remember the first year just... Extracting verses from the Quran, only to come back and say, "Do you really believe in this?" And you know, and so I think that went on for a couple years. And in the process, though, I started taking the spiritual framework of religion a little more seriously in terms of just trying to understand it. It wasn't an overnight epiphany. It wasn't um, uh, one thing that happened, but it was. It was a process of maybe you know two years that certain personal things started to happen. Um, I started really to question and really explore um, the Quran and the Muslim tradition um, particularly from, I thought, what I attempted to do was from an honest set of angles. And I think I came to the point where uh, you know eventually, I just really was blown away and transformed in the process of thinking about the the idea of divine revelation, the idea of prophetic traditions all of all of that process opened me up to not only I think exploring and then adopting Islam as my faith tradition but also thinking about all faith traditions very differently from that point
0: so were the seeds of this social service, social justice organization you founded, were they in that, I mean, really, and in some ways, you're a convert to Islam, they, right? Yeah. Uh, it, that conversion or that coming to Islam, did those things go together?
1: Yeah, or, I, I think definitely there was a strong intersection there. Yeah. Um, you know, and And particularly because the, and I think if it had been Arab Muslims or immigrant Muslims or Indonesian Muslims or Southeast Asian Muslims, talking to me, I probably wouldn't have paid them any attention, honestly. It was the fact that it was a sector of African-American Muslims, again, an experience that I was increasingly becoming very inspired by um, and molded by, in fact, um, that I took that conversation seriously and because they had been working with me in the context of social justice based organizing around critical issues like race and disparities both on campus but then increasingly off campus uh, and in the, in the larger city of Chicago uh, that I saw is uh, a religious tradition genuinely capable of being a vehicle for this really ideal expression of social justice. And I saw people adopting it in that context drove me to really initially take the tradition seriously from that perspective. And I think that was my first uh, embrace of it. But once I started embracing that, I started realizing the more difficult aspect and honest thing that I had also, I think, always historic, you know, had as a, as a young person yearned for but never found in any religious tradition was these, the, the larger spiritual questions of this you know, the, the more traditional sciences within uh, Muslim teachings, Islamic mysticism, the idea mm-hmm. of really refining the self, dealing with kind of our spiritual diseases, and beginning to explore that. Um, that came later, but that was also a byproduct of I began to start realizing that I had embraced Islam as a convert almost purely in this kind of political social justice context Mm -hmm. and that started wearing on me for a while because i started going to i started looking for something else that Mm -hmm. this was not satiating what i needed from a spiritual perspective and 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 so i eventually started looking elsewhere within the tradition for that
0: um that's interesting because that's also a move that i think um, African Americans who came out of civil rights have talked about right that that total focus on social justice and then having to recover the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not going to talk about that because we don't have time. Um, um, how did what was the first thing you did with Imani? Mean, what was the very first initial project?
1: Well, you mid know,
0: '90s. Are we talking? Mid- yeah, we're mid- talking.
1: Mid- we're talking mid '90s. Um, one of, the, one of the first things we did was, you know, I, I, was, I was brought to the southwest side of Chicago really around, initially around dealing with uh, a sector of the youth, um, who Muslim kids, many of them who were growing, who had come from Arab families themselves, but had been growing up on the southwest side of Chicago alongside African-American and Latino families who um, were dealing with the same issues of violence, poverty, drug addiction, um... One of our first things that we did was structuring a program that brought them together with um, uh, a cross-section of the African-American Muslims who were just a couple miles east of them on the south side of Chicago, but in many ways living in, still in very different worlds. And bringing them together was really an extraordinary thing, not only for them, but for many of the Muslim, at this point, you have to you know remember that this point is the, probably the first, second generation um, of our generation, if you will, of American Muslim kids who were now brought up. Um, from parents who had migrated to America post-1965. Right,
0: so, after that 1965 Immigration Act started bringing right. non-Europeans and non-Christians into the States for the first time. In large time. numbers. Yeah. And so you
1: had, you had a, now a, a large number of Muslim immigrant kids who were brought up, often in many kind of surrounding suburbs, in affluent middle-class suburbs across Chicago, who were now brought up in going to universities. Now they came across some of our efforts. They wanted to volunteer and get mobilized around prophetic aspects of their tradition that were more theoretical than Mm -hmm. implemented at that time in terms of dealing with social justice, getting engaged. And so when we brought all of this eclectic mix together, Middle class immigrant Muslim kids brought up in the suburbs, young immigrant Muslims brought up in the hood, African American Muslims who were, you know, have generations of experience on the south side of Chicago. That produced this extraordinary excitement, uh, a sense of possibility, something that had not done, been done, something whose its time had come, hmm. and not only did the youth programming then emerge out of that, then, you know, there was, like, this burst of energy. We had to do everything, right? <laughs> and I think we did this massive event called Taking It to the Streets in, a, in the same park that Martin Luther King was stoned in in 1966 in the same year that we incorporated. And for us, it was, you know, get it out of the mosque, get it out of our confines of the institutions, get it out of our segregated spaces, Come together in a public space, invite others in a space that had been associated with segregation, violence, ethnic division. come into that space, and let's celebrate a new aspect of coming together and While we brought nine hundred people together, that was seemed like nine hundred thousand to us <laughs> and yeah. we, we raised like twenty thousand dollars that could have been two million because with that we opened the office and started nine programs and (laughs) later regretted that tremendously when we realized we had to you know but we didn't we none of us had nonprofit management degrees we didn't really know what we were doing we were just driven that something had needed to be done that had not been done yet there was a new coming together and uh you know it was palpable for Mm -hmm. us at that
0: time so um, one of the people who preceded you up here this week was Father Greg Boyle, who works, who's who started one of the biggest gang intervention programs in the country. He's been doing that for decades, in you know, in hard parts of Los Angeles. And he's a Jesuit priest, and he, um, well, President Obama, since he came to office, has talked about the least of these, right? I mean, that's a, that's a very Christian idea, um, and, and a Jewish idea too. But really, you know, that 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 language from the New Testament that. That when you serve the least of these, you serve Christ. You serve the core of what Christianity is about. I just want to ask you: um, What is it in Islam? You know, where what is that spiritual underpinning in Islam that, for you, makes this work? You know, necessary.
1: I guess there's, there's a couple of things. You know, one is. The, the, the concept of the least of these is, is a powerful concept and I think there is some analogy within the Muslim tradition of that I mean the um, and I think I think Christian theologians would argue too that in many ways that impetus is also not to simply it's not a it, it shouldn't be positioned as a, uh, a salvation on high perspective I mean certainly Jesus didn't relate to the least of these from a Privileged perspective. Um, and I think in the Muslim tradition, right. it's the same uh, perspective in the sense that the Prophet Muhammad, first and foremost, was among, in many ways, the most marginalized sectors of that population. And he, first and foremost, galvanized those who were on the margins, those who had been, in many ways, the most oppressed of not only Mecca in 7th century Arabia, but of other civilizational structures and practices, including women, slaves, um, those uh, who uh, didn't have tribal affiliations, those who had no protection, those were the first to really embrace Islam and become the kind of pioneering revolutionary spirit that transformed the Arabian Peninsula and then you know, later uh, spilled out outward. Um, so there is that at the core of the kind of that Muslim social justice call that mm-hmm. it, 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 it is a call to bring together those who are the most disconnected and marginalized and find dignity uh, that has been deprived from them through systems and structures. And so I think that call is real critical for me thinking about that in light of all of and how to balance the um, extraordinary privileges that someone like uh, myself, uh, I've, I've um, been afforded throughout my life, even though there have of course been hardships, but thinking about living in, in, the, in a city like Chicago where you just and, and honestly in a society like the one that we're in and, and the world uh, that we're in with such extraordinary disparities uh, between those who You know, and if you're in a block in Chicago, if you're just you're born in in one zip code, you are, you know, destined for uh, a school that has over a fifty percent dropout rate. To you're you're destined to be four times more likely to be incarcerated, three more times to Mm -hmm. be you know unemployed. So I I think for me this work is in part a way to deal with the anxiety, the spiritual anxiety of those disparities that I can't feel religiously comfortable in simply accepting that type of um, division in, in, in the way we live our lives.
0: Hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to that. I... I if this is related. Um, you know, what you just said is so important, and it really... I sometimes forget my notes. Um, it, it's come up again and again this week that um, that spiritual anxiety is on a lot of people's hearts. Um, and, I, I mean, would you say a little bit more about um, how, from what you know, from what you've done, from what you've seen, and you get out of Chicago, I mean, you... Mm-hmm. Recently, been in London and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, and I we just in Washington because I was mm-hmm. looking at your Twitter feed. I'm really proud of myself. I was looking at your Twitter feed. <laughs> um, uh, what do you what do you say to people who would, who would ask the question? I mean, because so many people are aware of these that these disparities are growing; they're mm-hmm. deepening.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you know. I don't think there's a formulaic thing you can say to anyone, and that's part of what drives this work for me. Is that all our religious traditions? I think all our, our, um, even just basic principled ways of looking at the world. I think speak profoundly to this issue. I just I, I think about my experience in Chicago. You know, I live on a block and my wife and I talk about this often I have three children, I have two young girls for a long time you know I walk around my block and it's, it's a typical block on the south side of Chicago particularly in my neighborhood which is low middle, middle income African American, Latino and, and some Arab families and you know it, it's one thing to aspire towards those type of parodies in, in our lives that we think are more reflective of the spiritual calling that we all attempt to uh, implement into our lives and implement into society. And it's another thing when, you know, you're walking a four and six year old girl down a block where, you know, two days earlier there was a gang shooting, there's the kind of the, that, that kind of floating whiff of the marijuana that's coming off a stoop and, you know, how do you reconcile uh, dealing with that um, and for me part of the community work that I do is an attempt to to, to begin to adjust to that to speak to it and, and even on my block I know I go home and I, and I, and I agitate what should I do and I, recently when I, when I had one of those situations I walked right back out and I went right to the stoop where there was six or seven brothers sitting on the block and I went right to one of them and I said listen man can I holler at you for a moment and can you to, what? what you could say? I talk to him okay. for a moment? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Holler at him is, okay. the, uh, is, the, uh, <laughs>
0: okay.
1: is what I said. And, and I took him aside and I said, listen, man, with all due respect my brother. I said, it's just, you know, I got a four-year-old girl and I just don't want her to smell that next time I walk her down. And, and we had a real good conversation and it was, you know... And, and he put his arm around me at the end of the conversation and said, "Listen, man, I want to grow with you. I want to learn from you. I've been watching you, and and and, and don't worry, we, you know, you won't have to deal with that next time you walk down in front of us." And and I felt, you know, I went back, and it, it was those moments. It's those micro moments because there are moments in the community where you could just be. I mean, we're dealing with the last two months in Chicago have been, and many of you've heard the headlines you know and you can be overwhelmed with the enormity of that problem and simply accept and become adjusted to this extraordinary dynamic that exists but i i find myself you know just on in those moments just so desperately yearning for one experience that can confirm that it doesn't have to be this way, that you don't have to accept that, that you can engage those who sometimes you are told to fear, that you are told to write off. Um, And, you know, that one moment I went back to my block and it was just as if the weight of the world had just been lifted as I was walking back to the block that, you know, and and. And I just remind myself it's important to do this, to constantly do this. It's not to become so pie-eyed idealistic that you're not attuned to the, the subtleties and the dangers that exist, but also not, never lose hope in the possibility of this actually happening, that you can talk, engage, and live and work towards something that is a better reflection of the ideals and values and principles that, you know, are so eloquently articulated in our traditions.
0: Hmm. Talk to me about how you bring the arts into what you do. I mean, like, here's, here's one of the big defining sentences on your website, that, that Iman works for social justice, delivers a range of social services, and cultivates the arts in urban communities. So I want to hear a little bit about you know, how spiritually and practically the arts and justice work together for you.
1: Well, you know, for, for me, that tradition, again, and for our, I think our organization, and while now we host artists from the subcontinent who are performing kawali alongside an opera singer, along a spoken word poet, alongside a traditional, more, a traditional hip-hop artist, um, a lot of that honestly started with hip-hop.
0: Um, and You're really critical of people who judge, who condemn hip hop as part of the decay of culture and oh, ruining our young. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, because I think hip hop. I think hip hop's origins have been extraordinary. And I think hip hop, and, and that's because we, and we have this conversation a lot. You know, um, even those of us now. I mean, hip hop now is a thirty, almost forty-year-old kind of cultural phenomena. Uh, particularly in this country, and I think many still associate it with the most egregiously sexual and violent forms of waka flaka flame, you know, that they if are, are, are some of the more um, uh, sensationalist aspects of what you hear on... MTV or BET, but there is an aspect of hip hop culture that was extraordinary in bringing together the most disconnected, the most marginalized and disempowered sectors of urban young people both in the Bronx and then in other urban centers and found just extraordinarily creative ways of expressing not only Um, a search for a common a commonality but a a common cultural experience that was both universal and particular at the same time Mm. so you found for the first time young Latino black and white kids in New York coming together around a cultural creation that both allowed them to celebrate their Aztec traditions as well as what was as well as their shared New York experience and that Model that formula, you know, became global, and so you know, across the world, you can go into every urban center from you know the West Bank to Morocco to India and find Indian kids who are using samples of you know you know his kind of classical sitar and you know Ravi Shankar tracks on top of you know these funky hip-hop verses, and so blending the the new and the old. And so Iman found it, it, the way we kind of gravitated towards it was very organic. It became the most powerful and useful way of bringing together young kids in Chicago who were totally disconnected from one another while still living and sharing the same kind of urban experiences. So, for example, one of our first projects we did was on one big side of the wall, where there was a well-known graph writer, and and graffiti writing is one of the four elements of hip-hop in Chicago. His name was Zor, a Puerto Rican guy who was lauded on the streets as the, you know, he was the graph writer. And, you know, I got a hold of him, and uh, I I showed Zor um, traditional Islamic calligraphy. And there's a verse in the Quran that, you know, that some people have heard. It's, it's, a, it's an off-repeated verse when talking about kind of this universalist aspiration that is even in the Quran about we created you into nations and tribes that, so that you may get to know one another, not hate one another. And that, that the most dignified among you is the one with the most consciousness of the divine. Mm. And the you know we used that verse and i showed him traditional Islam kufi and it was done in this really ornate circular style and he said let's throw that up on the wall and uh, i said yeah that'd be great he said but i'm going to he said but i'm going to make it contextually relevant to urban graffiti <laughs> you know i said that's fine I said, but you can't, you need to do that because this was a neighborhood where, you know, uh, some of you know the Arabic language. You know, if, if one of those words, one of those dots are put in the wrong place, it could totally transform the meaning of the verse. So I said, you can do whatever you want, Zor, as long as you retain the core elements of this piece. And he said, that's fine. He says, he says, and it's speaking to me. I see this piece. It's speaking to me. And I remember what we did was literally we gathered over 250 kids in the neighborhood. Um, Zor did the outline of a whole piece that brought together all these different traditions. Um, from Aztec, you know, civilizational writings to old kind of, you know, uh, English, you know, text that was used. And then at the center of it was this verse that he replicated on the wall. And he got up that morning, it was 6 o'clock in the morning, this huge ladder, and I was watching him do this. And I remember an old, you know, Palestinian immigrant who was just in the country that he was kind of observing him. And just, he asked me how long this guy had been studying calligraphy. I said, he doesn't, he's not even Arab. He doesn't know Arabic. He, he refused to believe that. And when he came down, we had this unveiling of it that brought these you know uh, hip hop artists together. And it was, it, it was both something that Connected, It was relevant. It celebrated a core aspect of Muslim tradition. So we saw the power, and that was as early as 1995. And since then, we've used the art as a way to tell our stories, as a way to connect our stories. The festival that I'm talking about, that I mentioned, taking it to the streets, has now grown to become... We
0: do that every year? We do
1: it every other year. Uh So the next time is next summer. Now it brings over 20,000 people um, with huge celebrities, artists, Poli- you know, uh, politicians from all over the world it, the arts have become the real factor for us in both humanizing each other's stories connecting our stories and you know, I think revealing to one another the possibilities of what a better world can look like
0: hmm. I'll also say that in my um, encounter with Islam, my conversations with Muslims these last years, um, that reverence for beauty as a holy thing Also, as really a central thing, beauty as a moral value. Yeah, I I don't know that people know that. I mean, that's so that's so wonderful. And and to me, this is also really this whole way you're talking about this is resonant with that that essence of Islam. There's
1: in fact a tradition, Allahu Jamil wa Yubij Jamat, that um, God is beautiful and loves beauty. You know, and of course, that kind of core tenet um, had permeated the Islamic tradition for for centuries and unfortunately, you know, it is probably the least associated thing with Islam in the 30 second soundbite that you get off the media. Yeah. And um, you know, but is definitely there. And part of that beauty is in our stories, in our narratives, you know, and storytelling. The Quran starts there's one of the the one of the amazing stories that has lots of analogies with uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition is the story of Yusuf, Joseph and it's unique in the Quran out of the 114 surahs, chapters because it was the one chapter that was almost revealed in its entirety and it begins with the verses in Arabic aleika asan al which means we reveal to you the most beautiful of stories um, and the idea of God and the divine, as a beautiful storyteller um, is also really at the core of our tradition, and I think we try to capture that through even in our organizing. Right. man does a lot of community organizing that, and, and the, the community organizing tradition in America places at the center our stories and better connecting understanding our stories, and through that process, building you know, power
0: and somewhere I know. Um I remember reading that you wrote about the community cafe, which is another place where Mm -hmm. music and all kind of artistic expression happens. Um, Spoken word poetry, right? Um, It's time for us to tell our own stories without without others telling them for us. I wanted to read... um, I was looking at something a blogger wrote about the community cafe, and the title was Why I Drag My Family to Community Cafe. Um... I've come to believe that healthy human civilizations need to share dreams. When we enter a darkened concert hall to hear music or watch a play or a movie, we are entering an artist's dream space. I want my children to experience the collective dream of our American Muslim culture. I want them to understand that being a Muslim doesn't only consist of listening to Friday kutbas, going to Sunday school, and not eating pork. I wonder... um, that phrase, the collective American... That, what is it? The, the collective dream of our American Muslim culture. Mm-hmm. What does that phrase hold for you?
1: It's a powerful term, and I, I remember that blog. I, I, for me, part of that, at least, is this idea that we can make a significant impact. I think it was, the, in part, the dream of Malcolm after this extraordinary moment in his life, who of course he was a polarizing figure on some level, but Malcolm um, X. Malcolm X. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when, but in that very famous letter he wrote to his wife after he returned from Mecca, and um, explaining that he no longer subscribes to race-based theories of segregation and, and that kind of that version of Islam that he had both preached and learned was something he was rejecting. And this vision of um, Islam and the Muslim tradition as being a powerful conduit, the way he described it, in reconciling some of the great tensions of his time, of our time, I think that's the dream. And I think the, 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 the fact that we can begin to be seen as a community that both reflects... Some of the spiritual values and principles that I think are very common, but also seen as a, a community that can provide a unique contribution in this larger human endeavor that we all have, both in the United States and across the world, to become, uh, a, a, communi- become a society that, again, aspires towards uh, living with one another and more in, in, in a greater sense of with greater dignity, and I think the thing about that what makes the dream so unique here within the context of America, honestly, as a person that still loves to travel and loves being Muslim in many other parts of the world, nowhere is that dream, that broader dream, more possible, more relevant, more germane, and I think more urgent than it is here within the context of the American experience.
0: Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I remember speaking with Muslims in those immediate months after nine eleven, and and I remember talking to people who felt like American Muslims were right on this cusp of really entering the mainstream, and it, you know that it was it was just this progression, and then there was this traumatic, incredibly traumatic event. And when I talked to you in two thousand two, you were in pain. So you know, I do want to ask you this hard question: you know, how has what it means to be Muslim in America. I mean, how has that event um, changed you? You know, what has it added to this story, this narrative that, that you're you're helping unfold?
1: You know, I think the narrative still, the, the, the post-9-11 narrative and the anxieties that it both reconfirmed and both infused into the larger... Cultural, political, social lexicon of America is is probably still very much with us. Um, I think many of us went from the initial shock of the 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 horror of that experience. The
0: which you experienced as an American, right? Right. I mean, Uh, mean, your first experience of that was as an American.
1: So you know, and and I think all American Muslims' first experience of that was uh, I'm just like. 99% of almost every other American. I had my father, who's still alive, calling my brother frantically, and me frantically, convinced my brother was under the World Trade Tower. I mean, I think many Americans could talk about those calls of parents and anxieties and what had happened. So we experienced that, but of course, the immediate, right alongside that experience, and almost immediately, was, oh my God, what does this also mean for our community in terms of the way we're seen here and uh, dealing with that. And then, of course, the foreign policy dynamics, the war on terror and the social political implications of that. All of that, I think, at one point for me as a person who was very involved in just the minutiae of basic community work on the south side of Chicago, at one point I started to resent the idea and, and, in fact, never gravitated towards it and in some way begrudged a little bit of the even American Muslim leadership proclivity to continuously get up ad nauseum and proclaim how distant they were from these horrific acts. I just didn't feel that was actually useful or helpful for most for those who saw the Muslim community as so associated with that because I felt what was more needed at that time and now then and even now was more living examples of Muslims who are embedded in the realities of the American experiences for better or for worse trying to improve that experience. I don't you know, I don't have to. I've had conversations with our mayor, both the new one and the old one. We don't have to talk about Muslims and Islam and violence. I mean, we're out there praying on the corners of where people have been shot and killed. We're in homes. We don't need to suggest that our religion is prone to violence. We're trying to deal with the violence of very violent neighborhoods. But what I think is still unfortunate is sometimes someone like me can certainly take for granted both working in an urban community, working in environments where I really have had the honor and opportunity to, I think, live more of our tradition rather than have to constantly talk about it. I still know, uh, and I do get the chance to travel across the country, that there is still a large cross-section of our country, even till today, that have extraordinary anxieties and fears um, that are associated with the Muslim community. I mean, even currently... There's around 17 state legislatures in this country that have had, in the last year, had to entertain anti-Sharia legislation that has often been propelled on the on the fear of what living with Muslims and Islam in states like Oklahoma and Kansas can look like. And as asinine almost and absurd as that may be to a person who's saying, the average Oki doesn't really have to... Worry about Taliban, you know, like control. Yet they're expending time, effort, energy, and resources in legislating uh, almost a ban on basic things that are like kosher practices. You know, it's it's material, it's fodder for Stephen Colbert and the kind of the uh, the Comedy Central folks. But for Muslims who then have to kind of encounter that, it is. Still unsettling to say the very least. I spoke not too far from here, I think, in a university a couple years ago, and there was a very, and often in my QA and maybe even in this conversation, I really beg and even my students to be very honest and very politically incorrect because I think if, if that's what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had one woman who, uh, who's, you know, God bless her soul, who took me up on that and <laughs> after 35 minutes of this you know, talk about human rights and Muslims and she got up and said everything you said sounds so beautiful but I just honestly want to say I don't believe you and you know that was a real and then the exchange that she and I had both Publicly, And after the forum, really, I ended, I mean, she ended with hugging and kissing me and (laughs) asking me to run for, you know, office. Untrustworthy as you uh, were. But but, 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 we we had a great conversation, but the reality is Muslims, they're still, and and it's it's also an important reminder for me that sometimes we can get insulated in our more uh, other types of privileged spaces urban centers where there's more Latino black folks and others more familiar with the experience of Islam that there's still vast parts of this country where a lot of Americans have not had honest real conversations with Muslims and um, I think that can go a long way in assuaging and uh, some of those anxieties but those anxieties are there and there's an anxiety for me even about when, when to kind of be okay with talking about the very basics um, and when to say hey, damn it, we've been here we've been doing great things we shouldn't have to (laughs) convince you that we are part and parcel of the American experience and so uh, I I sometimes vacillate between those two feelings
0: I want to open this up for your uh, questions or comments because I am committed to ending on time today Um,
2: Hello. Uh, I'd like to ask you, you know, both the uh, Hebrew and Christian scriptures have some hard passages, you know, kill all the Amalekites and kill the Canaanites. And those passages, for the most part, have been marginalized in, in both Christianity and in Judaism I know the Koran has got some horrid passages about Jews and about non-believers, but it doesn't seem like they've been equally marginalized these days as have the Judeo-Christian uh, passages. How does someone like you deal with this situation if, if you believe that that's, an, if I've described it accurately? Sure.
1: It's it's an important question, and, and you know it's certainly one that probably requires a, a really lengthy conversation with those who are more schooled in the theology. But I, I I relate to it as an activist in in this sense. First of all, I have enough I think of exposure uh, to some of the tradition, both in Islam and and in Christianity and Judaism, to understand. Um, both the, com- the similarities and distinctions between these traditions as it relates to understanding how the larger communities relate to the text. And I think that's really important because I, I don't think there's enough understanding in the, the la- outside the Muslim community to fully appreciate the way the Muslim community relates to and understands and engages both historically and contemporarily the Qur'an as a text. Um, having said that, uh, there are some of those verses that are difficult, um, but there 's also an extraordinary and I do think that I have had a better you know i 've sat with scholars who 've trained here, who are unquestionably up, unapologetic about their anchoring in their tradition, who speak to it not from simply a politically correct context but can uh, have have helped me understand the historical contextual Uh, uh, um, dynamics of those verses and the true understandings of the way in which um, the references are made in in Arabic and, and in kind of the historical context of its time. But I also understand this, that in Islam, what is even much more straightforward, what is much more unequivocal is this. The single most repeated attribute of the divine in Islam is Ar-Rahman, is the most merciful. We are in fact even told that among all the attributes of God, the most generous, the most loving, that the mercy is the most um, supreme attribute of of, of them all. And that even the Prophet Muhammad is referred to in the Quran, out of all of his biographical descriptions, and referred to as Muslims, as Rahmatil Alameen, mercy for all of humanity. And the verse, the chapter in the Qur'an that was held up by the Prophet himself as the most beautiful chapter, the one that he called the bridesmaid of the Qur'an, is Ar-Rahman, the mercy. So all that to say, and then there's a verse that says in the Qur'an, if, if you're ever confronted with either an interpretation, understanding, or explanation of Islam or the Prophet or the Qur'an that undermine the supreme Characteristics that are without doubt 1,400-year-old grounded traditions that you look askance to those, that you question the interpretation. Because there's not only non-Muslims who sometimes put that question to me in ways that sometimes could make me re-examine. But even anytime I'm confronted by this, even in the Muslim community, I turn to what I think is more grounded in my tradition. And then say, with that lens, how do I go back to those types of verses? How do I go back to those who, either within the Muslim community or outside the community, want to present an interpretation that is so antithetical to that tradition? I know that doesn't fully answer the more the, the in-depth part of the question, but that's at least the way I preliminarily respond Thank to you. it. Thank, Thank you. you. I have uh, two questions. One is, how in your day-to-day life do you uh, relate to the divine aspect of justice as is portrayed in the Quran, and how do you bring that into real application into your existence and your work? And the second is, you talked about the collective Muslim experience in America, and my question is, since the Muslim community is so diverse, ethnically, theologically, spiritually, how do you build a unified identity within that experience? Okay. So, so the, fr- the first question about justice, I, I think for me, and, and, it, and it's semi-related to the, the, the question that was just asked, there's an interesting, not only do certain categories get described in the Quran, one of the categories that's considered the worst type of human being is described as the hypocrite, right? And... There's almost a spiritual science in Islam about the idea of hypocrisy. And there's, there's more outward, blatant signs of hypocrisy, and then there's the more inward signs of hypocrisy. And in the Muslim tradition, you're actually agitated to constantly... Engage in a self examination about those inward signs. In fact, one of the closest companions of the Prophet Muhammad, named Omar, who was the second ruler of Islam, Omar, and was constantly extolled by the Prophet as one of the most virtuous companions, once had a saying that said, If I was told the entire world was secured paradise and there was one person that was destined to hell, I would be convinced I was that person. And he constantly (laughs) talked about being fearful of the inward signs of hypocrisy, of not living up to those things that you maybe ascribe in public. So all that to answer the first question about justice, because so much of my public life is engaged in a pursuit for justice around education reform, housing, criminal justice, food justice, because I'm so immersed in the public aspects of justice, the way I think about the tradition in my own life and in those own intimate moments with the divine, I am constantly thinking about justice from a more internal perspective. Am I just with the the privileges and benefits that have been given to me? Am I just with my family? Am I just as a father? Am I just as a as a person that has is, is, is been given a tremendous amount? That's, so that's how I see justice. But the second question about the diversity of the Muslim community, you're absolutely right. Like, like most religious communities in America, and perhaps even more, uh, this has been said... Um, and it shouldn't be surprising to those of us you know who understand American history that the American Muslim community as it stands now is the most diverse Muslim community that has ever existed in the history of Islam right And, and, and
0: so, also also my is my I'm mic died we should say that that Islam is the second largest religion in America right. at this right. point. You know? and, and this would have happened without 9-11 and maybe nobody would have noticed. Right. But it's, it's huge. You, so, you, Christians are the largest group and then it's Muslims.
1: Yeah. So, so the Muslim, in all its diversity. Right. So in all its diversity, but in, in having said that and, and diverse understandings, diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds, there is a really interesting confluence Um, around American Muslim, both spiritual practice and identity that I think, even from a sociological perspective, allows us to talk broadly about an American Muslim experience. So, for instance, I talked about the African-American underpinnings. I always say this, I don't care if you're Bangladeshi, Palestinian, Indian, you as a Muslim in America have been informed by and almost privileged in some extent by the African-American Muslim experience. Even the name Muhammad, for instance, right? Which is, you know, when when my families were coming to America in the post-1965 kind of moment when, you know, our, our, you know, living in America in that era, many immigrants, the first thing they did, like many other immigrants, was they, it went from Muhammad to Mike to Mickey to Mo, right? <laughs> uh, right. And, and, you know, now at the same time, you had this extraordinary experience in the African-American Muslim community that was coming from... People the, changing their name the, the, to you Muhammad. Had yeah. From Mike to Mickey to yeah. taking on Muhammad to taking Ali. You had right. Muhammad Ali in the ring yeah. saying, what's my name? Say right. it, right? You know, and, and, and lifting and elevating the Muslim identity to a point where immigrants started thinking a little differently about both their names their ability to practice. And since then, there's been an interesting intersection and confluence that I think allows us to talk about that American Muslim experience. Of course, with all the caveats about its diversity, you know. Thank
0: you. We, we don't have any time to go into this, but I also just have to say, because people don't know this history, people think it's American, African-American Islam, nation of Islam. Right. And in fact, it's an incredibly rich story of evolution. Louis Farrakhan still gets all the press. He, he represents a tiny sliver right. of African-American Islams. At some point, there was a dramatic turning point, African-American Islams, the mainstream movement became Sunni, uh, Muslims, really in the spirit of this conversion that that uh, Malcolm X had at the end of his life. Nobody knows that story. Yeah. So I just want to say, don't uh, just equate African-American Muslims with what you know of Louis Farrakhan. I, on that note, and
1: I would say probably the least appreciated and perhaps most influential American Muslim figure Absolutely of the 20th, late 20th century, and perhaps even now, is a person who has recently passed, and that is by the name of Imam Waridin Muhammad, who was the son of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who in 1975 publicly precipitated the break from the nation and led... Perhaps to the largest single moment of, if you will, mass conversion, uh, but it was real more mass migration yeah. of African-American Muslims from an earlier encounter with Islam into this more universalistic kind of expression. Um, So you're you're right.
0: That's worth an hour on its own. Um, Okay, we can only have two more questions. And
2: hi, I want to thank you first of all for uh, lifting up the concept of the Muslim community feeling like they had to apologize. I mean, persons of color always feel like we have to apologize for what other people do who are same complexion. So I appreciate that. Uh, The question I have is, in your community organizing, how easy or difficult has it been to engage the houses of worship? In your efforts,
1: yeah. Thank you for that question. You know, Chicago's an extraordinary city for that, and, and you know, in terms of uh, having, a, for instance, a really powerful Black church tradition. You know, for a long time, our traditions, I think, were very disconnected um, and only connected around you know short-term campaigns and goals. We Im- we invested over the last ten years, uh, led by a Pentecostal preacher who's been an extraordinary mentor to me. Um, a effort called the United Congress of uh, Religious and Community Organizations and that effort um, has brought together Black Pentecostal churches, Muslim community, Latino, you know, Catholic churches, with other community organizations around a shared what we talk about as a kind of a grassroots human rights framework in which we both celebrate our religious traditions, our lack of traditions in some cases, connect them very intentionally, speak to our stories. And I could say that it's really had a profound impact in the last 10 years in the city. I mean, we've done some extraordinary things, and you know, uh, as a result of that. We've elected a county commissioner. Patricia got elected a state senator. Um, you know, Muslims and, 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 and Christians you know, really coming together along with the Jewish community in some really profound, powerful ways. And, and, we, and we're also privileged in the, in, to have a history of extraordinary Jewish community organizing in the city of Chicago, a mentor of mine by the name of Rabbi Marks. Um, again, a person who is not appreciated or as well understood outside of Chicago as I think he should be was a pioneer in, 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 in marching with King and for in forming those types of alliances um, around work like housing. So I think we're in, in Chicago. You know, I'm one of those very Chicago centric people, even as I go across the globe. I think both within Chicago there's, you know, extraordinary challenges, but there's a model, I think, hmm. that we're, we're very you know, conscious of trying to build. For hmm. that type of work, thank you. I'm sorry, I saw the. Room. Another so, question?
0: Yeah.
1: I know he sat down. Yeah, he's.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. That's okay. convenient.
1: What was your question? Was it about Rabbi Marks? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Answer okay. Yeah.
0: It's about religion. I'm oh, sorry.
2: I'm sorry. I was going to ask you a question about the Chicago Jewish community, but you just answered it. Oh, okay. okay. And,
1: and, and, and I should say something about just a, a quick caveat about a point about that. You know, my, my family is Palestinian, and I always tell, um, I was born, you know, I, I think, I always tell this because I, I, I do speak to synagogues a lot, and I often get asked the question when I'm in a very honest conversation did you grow up hating Jews? Right or having any hatred towards Jews, and and my my honest response was, you know, I didn't really live in Palestine, but I experienced the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as an eight-year-old being strip-searched at a border. I honestly grew up absolutely fearful of Jews, and that, and that sounds bizarre. But I, I could hear Hebrew. I didn't speak a word of it. it there could be a cac, just a just fifteen languages was being spoken at the same time. I could pick out Hebrew. Um, so I grew up very anxious of engagement with the Jewish community and any, because I constantly associated it with this conflict. Organizing, working in the context of what we do in Chicago not only really provided me an extraordinarily profound insight into the Jewish-American experience, but really was it gave me first-hand, almost mentorship from that community. Um, we, our, our organization not only uh, received mentorship, we received strategic planning. And people like Rabbi Marks and others um, have really come walk along with us in the trenches today. And, and you know, we're, we live in a community where we have synagogues, mosques, and churches... And we don't just come together to share our traditions and break fast or our, our learn our, our, our at a Seder together. We really are there. And I could call that rabbi, and I, this Rabbi Fournier who was on the south, call him my rabbi. I could call him at any time of night, and he will have his congregation on the block, on the corner. We have stood in the face of abandoned homes, foreclosed homes. We've prayed together on, on blocks where people have died and been killed. So, I mean, it's, it's really... Been inspirational work, and, and I think we're hopeful that that's a model for a different type of Jewish-Muslim engagement that I think many still have not had the opportunity to be
0: involved in. So, you have a really quick one.
2: Really quick. Yeah. Um, um, what engagement um, have you had? in the broader, outside of Chicago, where there are very um, conservative Christian um, speakers. Like, I heard somebody on the radio the other day saying, "Muhammad never... I was looking for the NPR station, and I I must have turned the dial... Good job, good job. ...to a a Christian speaker on the radio, radio show, and he was saying "Muhammad never even existed, and Islam is a fiction, and how do you... Interact with those, with that far to the, whatever. Right, yeah.
1: you, you know, I haven't really had as many opportunities, we'll call it that, to, to engage with, but, but I do sometimes really, again, attempt to uh, find those types of conversations and, uh, and, and moments. I think people like, there are now increasingly... Uh, important conversations and engagements with people like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and other big American Muslim scholars and activists with broader sectors of the even more conservative evangelical movement to begin to agitate one another. And I think that's, again, what the American experience provides. You I mean, you can rail on with that type of rhetoric in isolation, but do it at the same table within a Muslim. Do it at the same table with a a person from the Jewish community and and something begins to break down. You need to confront the the sometimes lunacy of that rhetoric. You need to confront the irrationality of that rhetoric. And most importantly, you have to confront the, the human story that's sitting in front of you that is just absolutely aghast and offended by what you're saying. And I think, Again, America, with our ongoing challenges and difficulties, and God knows we continue to have them, still is the best place on earth for that type of opportunity. And so, as much as we still have these kind of, you know, that rhetoric that you'll hear on the radio, I think there's still moments and corners across the country that even the most unlikely people and unlikely corners are having these types of conversations. And we constantly have to hope and pray that we can continue to agitate to make them happen.
2: Thank you.
0: Have you convinced
2: the Jewish mayor of Chicago that Sharia war does not menace the Ten Commandments?
1: Well, <laughs> Rahm Emanuel actually is, is, is doing a great job so far in, in both attempting to be accountable to his rabbi. I told him once, I mean, Ram, if some of you may, of course, most of you know Rahm Manuel, I think is not always associated with the most sublime spirituality, right? No. And we, I was joking with some of the religious leaders because he's come to Niftar an and we've had him in a couple of meetings. He, uh, he's increasingly... Trying to get over his awkwardness of talking about religion in public life, and I said the the, the last thing uh, I was sitting at a meeting with uh, with a rabbi of a synagogue that he attends, and he was fumbling through a attempt to make some type of religious analogy, and um, at one point he looked out in the audience and said my rabbi is really going to school me uh, this Sabbath. (laughs) And I said, you know, the greatest thing that came out of that talk is he publicly acknowledged you as his rabbi. So, you know, you now have the leverage to begin to push him along.
0: Hmm. Um, I forgot to do this earlier. Um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in the Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. I'm with Rami Nashashibi, founder and director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago. I, uh, I told you I was on your Twitter feed, and I loved this. I think it was really recent you wrote, my four-year-old discovers the spiritual power of her name as she looks over and seriously asks, Daddy, do you have the right Nia? <laughs> what does Nia mean?
1: So, so Nia in, in uh, kind of Arabic, Muslim you know, parlance is spiritual intention. And, um, and oftentimes, it's both a Swahili and an Arabic word, and oftentimes Muslims are always asked before they pray, before they do any act of service, before they, you know, even uh, in, engage in anything that has any kind of sense of uh, worship associated with it, is it being done for the right niyyah? Right. Is it being done oh. for the right purpose? Uh, are, are are you attempting to get fame or a credit? Uh, and I think, yeah, she, there was there was a song that had used her name in that way. And she, you know, the light went off in the middle of it and turned over to me on the couch and asked me that question. And honestly, I, I looked at her um, and I didn't have an answer for her for, I think, a good 20 <laughs> seconds. And she nodded her head and she said, no, probably not. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> and so we then had a conversation. I said, well, at least keep me in your prayers that I have. <laughs>
0: um, I, I, well, there's just just one final question. Uh, following on that, I mean, I think the first time I talked to you, maybe you had one baby, I'm not sure, yeah. but you have three children now. Yeah. And then they're a next, the next generation of American Muslims, Um. You know, how does having children then continue to shape and change this vision and passion that you bring to the work you do, the life you lead
1: i mean for me for me it, you know, I think I you know relating to the story I told earlier just makes everything that much more urgent it's um you know I want my daughter and i'm I'm acutely aware I have a seven year old too she's the eldest now, you know acutely aware of how. She thinks about herself in relationship to the larger society. And I don't want her to feel both apologetic, marginalized by associating with a spiritual tradition that is, you know, challenging her to connect to the divine. I want her to feel proud of that. I want her to be in spaces where that is nurtured. I want her to be in spaces where that's validated. So, um... And I also wanted her to think of that tradition as a tradition that applies beyond kind of any provincial circle of one group of people. Um, and, you know, and, and so oftentimes when I'm with her, my wife's a physician and, you know, and, and she's she works at Cook County Hospital and she sees, you know, deals with the realities of people who are uninsured and undocumented, and she, you know, also attends to this situation, I think, from a different perspective. For me, my young, my, uh, Jenna is her name, the eldest, uh, when I take her on rallies or when she's asked, um, you know, what she wants to be right now, it is, uh, it's a veterinarian and an activist, right? So, (laughs) so. So the activist is still in there. Right? Yeah. I always tell her, you can do everything else, but you have to be active. You have to be engaged. And, you know, um, I think she gets it. I mean, she's out. I've taken her to corner stores where we're working on food justice issues. I've taken her to abandoned homes. She gets. She knows, you know, and part of what I do in the spaces that I, I work and live is the Muslim greeting, both to Muslims, but it's also extended to everyone, is As-salamu alaykum. Uh, and a very kind of, it's peace and blessings be upon you. And, you know, I say it to most everyone, to the annoyance of my wife, who's, uh, <laughs> and who walks down the street, ours with us. And, um, and my daughter, you know, has kind of picked up on that and um, was rolling down the window driving with my wife and there was what looked like and she connects everyone with the Muslim tradition and in fact we drive down a road in the winter that has a nativity scene in front of it and she's like, look dad, Muslims! <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you're right, you're right. <laughs> I always tell the mothers of that Holy Cross Hospital, I said, you know. And, and, it, and the ability to kind of connect with traditions in that context, whether it's from the Jewish and the Muslim community, to see ourselves and others uh, is, is something that I think is just critical for my children. I, and I hope that they continue to have that.
0: Yeah. Thank you